Let's pack it up and go strike a rich. Welcome, Mere Mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Kyron, host of the Mere Mortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information that is within to extract some themes you might not have realized to also go find some gold. Indeed, we've got Roughing It by Mark Twain. So this book was published in 1872, and it's a bit of a thick one, 600 pages in total. Probably took me close to 20 hours of reading. It is a fairly hefty volume. It's a collection of his rambling anecdotes from his travels as a younger man. So we travel back in time to the kind of Wild West days, the Californian gold rush. So he travels to the West. He goes, he tries to strike it rich. He has his fan that um, all of the different types of mining that is going on within there. He becomes a journalist and starts writing about his experiences of being in San Francisco, places like that, Uh, and then finally travels to Hawaii and uh, sees and experiences the kingdom of Hawaii before coming back to America. It is semi-autobiographical, so he did most of these things, but there are a lot of fictionalized tales within this, as you would read, because there's a lot of satire and what is called grotesque humor, which is in those times meant very over the top. It's very uh, in your face. And so what I would say, it's a lot of it's observational, but it's also participatory. He did a lot of these things. And so all of the stories in here about you know people losing money, funny things happening to gold miners uh, of actual real people and real events of folk tales. There's just a whole lot of things captured within here observations of nature observations of people observations of tons and tons of different things so i'm going to talk a little bit about mark twain or as he is better known samuel longhorn clemens uh, who was born in 1835 and died in 1910 he's a personal favorite of mine i have reviewed one of his books before life on the mississippi and i've read tons of his others, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, etc., etc. This book itself was written for serialization. So a lot of the titles that you will find within here basically give the full detail of what's within. So we have, uh, you know, chapter, what's this, 70, something like this. A droll character, Mrs. Beasley and her son, meditations on turnips, a letter from Horace Greeley, an indignant rejoinder, the letter translated, but too late. That is, yes, the title of the chapter. Uh, We've got another one here. Frights to California, silver bricks, underground mines, timber supports, a visit to the mines, the cave mines, total of shipments in 1863. And that's for a chapter of seven pages in length. And so they all are roughly this kind of five to seven pages uh, per chapter. And so the book itself has close to 70, something like that. And this is one of his earlier works. So it's probably one of the first books uh, he has written in comparison to perhaps some of the more well-known ones. Uh, And so this was really him testing and venturing out into the world of becoming a a full-time author, a serious author, I guess. Uh, Let's jump onto the first theme, which is America capturing its spirit. So who is the capturer in this case? And I already slightly referenced it with this observational and participatory, but here's this mix. And I think he's the reason he's kind of gained renown as a person who can capture the, the spirit of detailing what a time was like was because he did these things. He actually went out to these places. He was extremely adventurous, but he also had this great ability to observe as, as well, somewhat in a detached way, but also being part of it. This, for example, is something I would really suck at. 
I'm very much more of the observing side of things and I don't participate in culture perhaps as much. So I wouldn't be a great explainer of Australian culture, for example. And I think it really does need this special blend of being a person who who can do those things. And let's jump on to, I suppose, the spirit of the American people. And it's pretty rough, <laughs> at least it was in this time. So jumping over to here on page 414 and 415. So basically in this time, he's describing, I guess, what it was like to be in the California gold rush. Who are the sort of people? What were they doing out there? And so uh, he goes upon this way. It was a splendid population for all the slow, sleepy, sluggish brained sloths stayed at home. You never find that sort of people among pioneers. You cannot build pioneers out of that sort of material. It was that population that gave to California a name for getting up as astounding enterprises and rushing them through with a magnificent dash and daring and a recklessness of cost or consequences, which she bears on to this day. And when she projects a new surprise, the grave world smiles as usual and says, well, that California is all over. But they were rough in those times. They fairly reveled in gold, whiskey, fights, and fandangos, and were unspeakably happy. The honest miner raked from a hundred to a thousand dollars out of his claim a day, and what with the gambling dens and the other entertainments, he had an ascent in the next morning, if he had any sort of luck. They cooked their own bacon and beans, sewed on their own buttons, washed their own shirts, blue woolen ones, and if a man wanted to fight on his hands without an annoying delay, all he had to do was to appear in public in a white shirt or a stovepipe hat and he would be accommodated. For those people hated aristocrats. They had a particular and malignant animosity towards what they called a biled shirt. It was a wild, free, disorderly, grotesque society. Men, only swarming hosts of stalwart men. Nothing juvenile, nothing feminine, visible anywhere. So <laughs> you really get a sense of, okay, well, these were very interesting times. So this was the California gold rush, it was just men basically going out to these godforsaken places and trying their luck and just seeing what will happen. And so the pioneer did have this very much of a get rich quick mentality of gambling it all on the on on like the roll of the dice and seeing what would happen. It was male dominated, so a lot of the stories in this book center around violence or threats and sometimes in humorous ways but i think the problem with violence is even in the the humorous ways there is a underlying aspect like okay this is, could get me killed this could be a really bad thing so we would definitely see that the people of those time it was centered around this and he writes of course it's going to be male dominated because he was working in the mining industry and you know even to this day I worked in the mining industry here in Queensland and it's 95%, 90% male dominated. So there is just something about this time, this atmosphere, which is going to portray that. If we jump onto maybe the American spirit at, at a higher level, what what was it like at the kind of state level perhaps of being in California? And it seemed to be very hands-off and there was this little bit of a mix i guess between individualism everyone had their own right to do what they wanted versus might makes right which was if you're stronger if you had more connections basically you could do whatever you wanted so we could see this with the claims for example where you could stake out oh i want i i found this piece of land here and because nobody owned anything in those times is the you know 1850s you could just go to this piece of land and say, this is mine, um, I, I claim right to it. And basically that was it. Uh, unless you didn't work on the mine for, I believe it was a period of 10 days or something like that. 
And he's got some funny stories about how he could have made it rich, but him and his co-partner and this other guy, they all none of them actually did work on the mine. And so after 10 days or 15 days, can't remember exactly, uh, anyone could then claim it for their own. And so there's this real mix, I suppose, of just there wasn't so much government at that time. And we have to remember this was in yeah, like 1850s. Uh, I got the number. There was 31 million Americans in 1860. So about the size of Australia spread out over about the size of Australia as well. So very kind of reminiscent of um, the Wild West, I guess. You know, you could just do whatever the hell you wanted. There was not a lot of rules or regulations or laws. There were... Uh, these highwaymen, there was these robbers, there were these des- desperados, he called them, which are these kind of loose men by the minute, you know, getting into fights, don't give a fuck, all of these sorts of crazy things going on. And so it was still, the American spirit was still much dominated by the the individual, the the lone person rather than the the kind of entity of a group or a government or a state um, with this, of course, being, you know, out in the frontiers of the pioneer lands, it would have been very different, of course, in the New Yorks or well-established places already. If we go to a higher level, okay, what was it like at the kind of religion or country level? And he's got some funny anecdotes where it's, uh, he goes to Hawaii and he notes that the Christians there, they have these missionaries who went to Hawaii and basically he was, he was finding it funny that the Hawaiians themselves were basically living in this tropical paradise. They, you know, they, they were, it was almost like the Christians brought hell to heaven because they were already living in, in harmony, more or less. There was, of course, fights and things going on in those times, but it's not like they needed the preponderance of rules that Christianity creates and trying to import this into a completely new culture doesn't seem to work. The people there, when they were getting clothes for the first time, for example, they would show up to church and they would just have like this swanky shirt on because, and that was it, you know, bare naked all the rest of their body um, because that was all they had or that was what got imported and they just didn't have the same idea of shame or this thing's taboo or you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and But they had a lot of their own religion, which was, you know, the sacred mountain, don't trespass on this bit or this God will get angry at you, all of these sorts of different things. So religion was a very strong part of this. It was part of the uh, Puritan part of America. So that was still very, very strong in the 1860s. And you could even just say like, okay, at the country level, what was it like? It's kind of hard to tell because he didn't go everywhere in the country and you'd probably need to read a lot of his books combined to really get the sense of what you know, the 1800s America was alike. But I would just say, you know, a, a hypothetical, could we guess where America is today in comparison to what we saw in this book? And I'm kind of saying nah, because we don't see a lot of the things where the American, I guess, spirit that you'd call now is that very much does seem to at the individual level does seem to still have reminiscences of these individual portions of, you know, the hardworking miner or solo man on his own, the religious bent of the Mormons and their crazy wacky religions that they have over there and various different sects. And you can, you know, as long as you're freedom, that's the only thing that really matters. Uh, 
And but then on like the the country level, you know, invading all of these different countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam and places like that. I wouldn't have said that the America of today is what you could have predicted knowing about the America of the 1860s. It does seem that 150, 170 years later, a lot of things have have quite dramatically changed. So that was uh, just some interesting points. I I think of, of the American spirit, you will get a lot of it from this book. The other theme was nature. Seeing is believing. And man, is he a descriptive writer. He is fantastic at capturing of what he sees of feels smells all of his senses and combining it into just these truly truly unique portions and it's a long book but i think that's why you can stay hooked throughout because he is so fantastic at at these descriptions i'm going to jump here onto page 163 and so he's talking about the the desert so this is still in his uh, portion where he's traveling from basically the east coast to the um to the west coast and this was you know in the time of horse and buggy basically so um he's got this uh bit here where he's talking about the desert you know we're going to cross the desert for the first time so all this was very well and very comfortable and satisfactory but now we were to cross a desert in daylight this was fine novel romantic dramatically adventurous this indeed was worth living for worth traveling for we would write home all about it this enthusiasm, this stern thirst for adventure, wilted under the sultry August sun and did not last above one hour. One poor little hour, and then we were ashamed that we had gushed so. The poetry was all in the anticipation. There is none in the reality. Imagine a vast, waveless ocean, stricken dead and turned to ashes. Imagine this solemn waste, tufted with ash-dusted sage bushes. Imagine the lifeless silence and solitude that belongs to such a place. Imagine a coach creeping like a bug through the midst of this shoreless level and sending up tumbled volumes of dust as if it were a bug that went by steam. Imagine this aching monotony of toiling and plowing kept up hour after hour and the shore still as far away as ever. Apparently, imagine team, driver, coach and passengers so deeply coated with ashes that they are all one colorless color. Imagine asterisks, Drifting above mustaches and eyebrows like snow accumulations on bows and bushes. This is the reality of it. And so then he goes on and talks more about this desert. And it's so funny because it he speaks the truth. And I think that's why it's so compelling, so descriptive. Because he's not, you know, talking about, wow, yeah, the desert was, was living up to things. He's like, no, it was bloody shit. Uh, which is very much my <laughs> reality when I compare the Australian outback, which some people will talk about the the majestic, you know, vastness of it, the shrubbery, the the lonesome nature, and I'm just like, this is just boring. It's just a re- it's just red dirt. There's the 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 trees, the shrubbery are just they all look the same. There's no, <laughs> you know, there's no there's no inherent like deeper quality beauty to it it's just straight up boring <laughs> so i really identified it with that and with this travel this net this nature i guess part of it's like why travel why go out to see nature uh, and it seems to be an eternal question i think people were asking this back in the day uh of of his time and the pioneers they thrive of it of this adventure of this new things of seeing something that is so different from your own reality Um, And it's not just a luxury. It's not just something that you do when you're rich and fun. You know, this was, he was doing it when he was dirt poor and he was still traveling and you can still do it to, to this day. If you're, you know, willing to, to sacrifice for it. I've met plenty of people who 
did not have the money to travel, but they were still traveling. Um, and so he has this spirit, which is, is very reminiscent also of um, Henry David Thoreau, Walden, if you've read that book, which is about a man going out to this lake and living on his lonesome, of living by nature and, and his experiences with that. Um, so he has a section sort of like that. Uh, but this portion here on page 122, I think is explains the, the nature of why it's important and why it's also important to go see it for yourself. The two miles beyond South Pass City, we saw for the first time that mysterious marvel which all Western untraveled boys have heard of and fully believe in, but are sure to be astounded at when they see it with their own eyes. Nevertheless, banks of snow in dead summertime. We were now far up toward the sky and knew all the time that we must presently encounter lofty summits clad in the eternal snow, which was so commonplace a matter of mention in books, and yet when I did see it, glittering in the sun on stately domes in the distance, and knew that a month was August, and that my coat was hanging up because it was too warm to wear it, I was full as much amazed as if I had never heard of snow in August before. Truly, seeing is believing, and many a man lives a long life through, thinking he believes certain universally received and well-established things, and yet never suspects that if he were confronted by those things once, he would discover that he did not really believe them before, but only thought he believed them. And I think that sums it up. There are things in this world which you have to see with your own eyes to really, truly believe. A picture on the internet, a description from a friend, VR, whatever it is, there are things where you need to see it for yourself. You need to see that volcano in in Guatemala exploding in front of your eyes a kilometer away and just go like, wow, I cannot believe this is a real thing. So definitely part of this book will really make you want to travel to to go and explore because it does have that adventurous spirit capturing the American spirit within it combined with this uh, nature and observations. And he does this everywhere. He does it in Hawaii. He does it when he's traveling. He does it when he's stay, uh, staying in one place. There's always something that he is very good at describing. So I'm going to jump onto my own observations and takeaways. Uh, he's a fearless writer. And I think this is combining with that aspect of a truth-telling. He, he sets out really reality as it is. He, he doesn't really mince words. Uh, we can see this when he criticizes you know, the Mormons, uh, when he's going throughout the book, he calls out assholes by names. He has real descriptions. And part of the funny thing is like, how does he get away with it? Because this was a time when, you know, you could get sued for, for saying something rebellious. And we see this and not only just sued, but kind of kidnapped and almost tortured. One of the last examples in the book, in the appendix is of a guy who, of a newspaper writer who has this happen to him. So it's like, Man, he, he, he put it all on the line. He, he did not mince words. Um, and I think the way that he kind of got away with it was one, self-deprecation. There's so much of it in this book, but also just wit. He's so damn funny. And so jumping onto page uh, 71 here, this is just classic Mark Twain uh, sort of descriptions. And so much of this book is filled with it. So it, it is a lot of a, a joy to read. And so he's uh, just met this person and it's a you know, a guy in a random city or a random place and he's talking more about what it was uh, uh, their local food and customs, I guess. And so he says, then he poured for us a beverage, which he called Slumgullion. And it's hard to think he was not inspired when he named it. It really pretended to be tea, but there was too much dish rag and sand and old bacon rind in it to deceive the intelligent traveler. He had no sugar and no milk, not even a spoon to stir the ingredients with. 
We could not eat the bread or the meat, nor drink the slumgullion, and when I looked at the melancholy vinegar cruet, I thought of the anecdote, a very, very old one, even at that day, of the traveller who sat down to a table which had nothing on it but a mackerel and a pot of mustard. He asked the landlord if this was all. The landlord said, All? Why, thunder and lightning, I should think there was mackerel enough there for six, but I don't like mackerel. Oh, then help yourself to the mustard. (laughs) So many good anecdotes and quick little witty things like that. He really just brings them up and this this book is full of it. So, you, if you're reading it, you're going to get a lot of funny things. Um, and you get the feeling he was somewhat born this way as being a natural storyteller, as being someone who was just so funny, so witty. And it's he can do it in all sort of different ways. He's got real subtle ones. He's got this over-the-top grotesque style that I was talking about. He's got deadpan. He's just got, you know, quick words, slum gullion, all of these. He, he was a great observer as well of, of writing and of writing well and of language. And you can really just see it come out through this book. He was so good at all of it. Um, and the best bit is you never really know where he's going to go with his digressions. You can't tell what is going to come up next, even in the next chapter, because he'll go from this funny anecdote about a random person to then talking about the beauty of the sunset um, to then talking about, you know, what it is to actually do um, a spot mining or placer mining, which is where you kind of go to the river creeks and pan for gold. And he'll just be varying. So these digressions, they're unpredictable. And they're sometimes true as well. There was this one story about this sack of flour and they were trying to raise funds for... Uh, I think it was like the Revolutionary Army or something like that or or a um, the Civil Army or something along those lines, an army of some sorts. And this guy had this sack of flour that he would take around from town to town and he would auction it off and people would, you know, bid up the price of this thing to ridiculous levels and then give it back to him and all that money would then go to um, charity or this uh, this resistance, the civil thing, whatever it was. And then he would go to the next town and raise all of it again by auctioning off this flower. And it kind of got this reputation of being, you know, the sack of flour. You go and you see it and it was a spectacle. And I just thought, man, like what a ridiculously like made up story. But no, it was true. And, and you know, he lived in history. He knew tons of, you know, he knew Nikola Tesla. There's no mention of that in this book because it was from his younger days. But he was a guy who truly went out and truly went to these places. And it was so, so fun to read. So, in summary, obviously, you can tell I'm, I'm a huge fan in general of him. And this book uh, didn't let me down at all. It does everything. It can entertain. It's ent- informational. It's got a unique perspective. It's historical. It's funny. Uh, it just keeps going on and on. The and My favorite parts were, I suppose, the, the middle sections of the book was where I felt it really got going. So, from kind of page 50 to 550, something like that. And it was probably only slightly too long. If if those first 50 and last 50 pages had been cut off, I think that that would have um, really just made it like icing on the cake for me. So, uh, highly recommended, uh, along with Life on the Mississippi, which I talked about before. Mark Twain's Roughing It, a very, very solid 8 out of 10. Uh, I really enjoyed this book and I enjoy him as an author. And that is it for today, my mere mortalites. Thank you for joining me to the end of this audio. What are your thoughts on Mark Twain, on roughing it, on the American spirit, on nature, on seeing is believing, on travel? So many different things to get into. 
The best way to give me some feedback to let me know these things is via Boostergram, which is a message you can send within a decent podcasting app, a, a new podcasting app, uh, as well as supporting the show at the same time with a, uh, a bit of money, which can come through to me. I do this, no ads, no sponsorships, nothing like that. This is purely just for the informa- informational purposes of uh, providing something of value for you. And um, I really hope that you could just send that back because this podcast really can't go on forever unless I um, uh, start receiving some support like that. So yeah, uh, a decent app would be something like Fountain or Podverse. Um, and if you also want to know more, go to meremodelspodcast.com slash support. And uh, there's some explanations there as well. Would also just recommend checking out the Mere Models podcast. A lot of the themes, ideas, funny things that I take out from this, I discuss with my friend Juan in that in a more conversational style. So yeah, really would uh, appreciate if you come join me over there as well. That is it for today. I really do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Ciao for now. Kyron out.